If you're new with us, my name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. It's so great to have you with us. Ladies, thank you so much. You guys are perfect right there. Thank you. Can we give it up for them? Because that's, you know, yeah, woo! No small actors. No, no small parts, just small actors. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Jason, one of the pastors here, and, and welcome. We're so glad you're here. You chose to be with us this morning. If you're looking for a church to call home, a family, we'd love for you to be a part of what God is doing here. Uh, maybe you're curious about Jesus or faith. Maybe you're checking out church. Maybe you've been hurt by the church in the past and you're kind of dipping your toe back into the water. Or maybe you're new to the area and looking for a place to call home. Or maybe you're just here for the summer and you've chosen to call this place home during that time. Whatever reason you're here, we're so glad you are. God's been doing some pretty remarkable things at Zion over the last year. Um, just a point of celebration, we've had some of our highest numbers at the park uh, this year, which praise God. Yeah, come on, let's give it up. Uh, and then after Easter, so normally we see our biggest spike is right after Easter until the park. And we've actually had, we've been hitting not only our pre-COVID numbers, but larger than our pre-COVID numbers. And so we're just so grateful for how God is moving in this place and uh, grateful for you to be here. We're going to jump right into our message this morning. So if you'd like to stand with me, I want to invite you to join me in a prayer. Now, normally we have this prayer on the screen, but I want you to hear this. This is a prayer of invitation and a prayer of expectation. I recently had somebody ask me, they said, Jason, we're starting to feel like a liturgical church. Um, this whole praying and standing and reading scripture out loud together. And, and here, you may not know this, but did you know every church service is liturgical? It's just what kind of liturgy you do. We all have things that we believe or that we put as part of our service. But here's the thing. We wanted to move from being a church of consuming to a church of participation. And the reason why we invite you, and here's the thing, if you don't believe, if you don't want to pray this, don't do it. But the reason why we've started opening up in a time of prayer is it's a way of saying, God, not only do I want you to, but I'm expecting you to move. And so if you agree with that, or if you want that, then join me. And well, normally we have it on the screen, but since we've been in the park, it's more of a repeat after me. But if you're not there yet, don't pray it. Don't feel obligated to. And then we read scripture because here's the thing, we stand on God's word. God's word is his gift to us. It's not about what Jason Miller has to say. My job is to do the best I can to get out of the way of scripture and maybe help us sometimes understand scripture, but it's God's word that brings life. Amen? And so the reason why we stand for God's word and the reason why we read God's word together is it's a way for us to remember what the focus of church is. The, church of, of church, the purpose of church, the focus of church is not me. It's Jesus. And God's word is his gift that reveals the heart of Christ, God's heart to us. And the reason why we pray is we believe in a God who hears our prayers, who actually wants to engage. So with that being said, if you want to, I want to invite you to repeat after me and let this be your prayer, uh, a prayer of invitation and expectation. Father in heaven, I do not always trust you with my whole life. I sometimes struggle to believe your promises. Holy Spirit, speak to me through your word. Reveal any lies I have believed about you, about others, and myself. Help me to trust and believe. Help me to surrender what I don't understand. Soften my heart and strengthen my faith in Jesus. In his powerful name we pray. All God's people said... Amen. And our verses for today are Psalm 13, 1 through 2, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and Luke 22 through 24. 
How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And then Jesus taught them how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then the night that Jesus was betrayed, he cried out to the Lord, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Uh, I want to give a big thank you to Megan Dennis, our executive director, for bringing God's word to our church. Can we give a big thank you to Megan last week? Uh, you may not know Megan. Uh, Megan's role is the executive director. She handles all the day-to-day -day stuff, and she's part of our executive team. And I'm so grateful that she allowed the Holy Spirit to speak to her, but also through her. And I heard just wonderful things last week about how God moved. And I want to say I'm so incredibly blessed and thankful for our staff and our volunteers and leaders here at Zion. Um, you may not know this, but I mean, we have a really deep bench. Uh, and I'm grateful because I know that I can be gone on times and I trust that God is going to use our staff. And I said this, Megan's not in here. Uh, I've really been trying to encourage Megan. I believe that she actually has a teaching and a preaching gift. And she's somebody who really doesn't like the spotlight. And I'm like, it's not about the spotlight. It's about exercising the gift is that God is moving in you and so that you can serve the body of Christ. And, and we have so many people, so many gifted, talented staff. And I cannot express how truly blessed and, and grateful I am for all of them. Um, we're in the last few weeks of our summer series called You've Already Got It, where we've been exploring God's promises and blessings to those who have placed their hope and faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? There's a, and we've talked about this over the last couple of months, but not everybody is a child of God. Everybody is made in the image of God, but only those who have given their life to Jesus are declared children of God. They're adopted into God's family. And God makes promises to his children. He makes promises of, to bless them and to keep them. And, and these promises are only for those who are in Christ. And so when we talk about God's promises, we have to know that there's a condition on those promises. You have to belong to Jesus. But when you do that, you don't have to fight to receive the blessing or the promise. You have to fight to believe in the promise. You have to fight to stand in the promise because it's so easy to not trust God and his promises and his faithfulness. Would you agree with that? And so our fight is not to receive, it's to believe. Our fight is to stand in the midst, to stand in the river, so to speak, under the waterfall of God's promises and blessings. To, that's where our fight is. We don't have to earn any of it. Jesus already paid that. And so we've been talking about God's promises. And last week, Megan shared about God's promise to provide. That if you're a Christian, if you are, your faith is in Jesus, God makes a promise that he will provide for you. Now, the challenge for us is that God says he'll provide everything you want, not everyth or everything you need, not everything you want. And that's part of our problem is usually when we come to God, we come to God with our wants, not our needs. And then when we do say, this is what I want, um, we often will cha change the word, this is what I need, God. I need to win the lottery. <laughs> you, know, you understand all the good I could do if I won the lottery, Lord, right? And God doesn't give us what we want, he gives us what we need. And sometimes there are things that we need that we don't know that we need. And that's the hardest part. So what do we do when we don't feel like God actually provides for us? What we end up doing is we look to people, places, or things other than God to meet those needs. I do. You do. 
The Bible calls anything that we put our trust in, our faith in, that is not God, any person, place, or thing other than God that you look to for provision, he calls that an idol. Everybody say idol. Idols are faux gods. They're faux providers. They kind of look like they provide, but it's not real provision. It's temporary provision. It's not provision that actually sustains. And then the Bible tells us that when, when we do that action, when you actually put your hope in those things, he calls that act idolatry. Everybody say idolatry. Idolatry is when we actively put our hope and trust in something other than God to provide. Ultimately. I mean, here's the thing. Jobs provide, right? They do. But what happens if you lose the job? Our, our wives or our husbands or our children, they, they provide something, but it's not ultimate. God is our ultimate. Now, a few weeks ago, I confessed to everyone that was at the park, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back a couple weeks ago and listen to the message, but I confess that one of my personal struggle, struggles around God's provision is that God will actually provide me true rest for my soul through what the Bible calls Sabbath. I still, I wrestle with this. It is hard for me to put my trust in God in this area. And because I don't always trust God to provide, I often look to idols, wrong things, to provide a pseudo rest. I look to food, to hobbies, or Netflix, or my spouse, or sometimes even a nap, right? And none of these things are bad unto themselves, but when I look to them as ultimate, they've now moved from a gift to a curse. Does that make sense? God gives us wonderful gifts. Hobbies are a gift. Would you agree with that? Like, how cool is it? Do you know, imagine, do you think anybody was playing golf with well, a game didn't exist yet, but they weren't playing golf when Jesus was around? I'm grateful for the game of golf, primarily because it reminds me, I suck at things. Like, <laughs> I'm grateful for Netflix. I get to watch fun TV series. I'm grateful for naps, but these things are not ultimate. And sometimes I look to them to provide ultimate rest instead of that ultimate source of rest, which is Jesus. Last summer... I was invited by another pastor friend of mine from Kentucky. He invited me to go on this respite. It's a retreat in Montana that's about five days, and it's with 17 to 18 high-level leaders and pastors. Why he called me, I don't know. But he said, hey, I want to invite you to come to this. It's invitation only, and it is truly respite. It's care. You'll fly fish. You'll eat steak. There's not conferences. You're not sitting in a classroom. It's just hanging out with a bunch of dudes who love Jesus, who are all trying to love Jesus together. And then at night, they do this thing called table time. And table time is really when we get into it, where we talk about what we need and what God is doing in us and how God is challenging us. And last year, I came to that table not knowing what I was getting into because the only other person I knew in the room was the guy who invited me. And about day three, I'm sitting there, and this was last year, and and I had had about, um, about four years where I just felt like I couldn't catch my breath. I was constantly in, under, underwater. Anybody ever felt that way? You ever felt like you just can't catch your breath? For four years, it was feeling like that. It was just one thing after another. And every time I came up for air, another wave would knock me down. And I was there on the third night. And he was asking, they were saying, hey, what's the thing that could take you out of ministry? And, and I began to weep. I didn't think I was going to. I thought I was just going to share. I'm not a super emotional guy. Emotions in me, not great friends. I know they exist. I just kind of like, leave me alone. Let me go do something fun, right? And, and I got up and I started sharing about how I could finally catch my breath for the first time in four years. And the reason was I wasn't the smartest guy in the room. I certainly wasn't the highest level leader in the room. I was literally, I just had to be there and be present. So this, a year comes around and you can only go if you're invited. That's the only way you can get to. I was invited last year, so I'd go this year. I've been waiting all year long for this trip to fly fish, go shooting, go hang out with the men, and then table time. 
And so that Sunday that I preached about not trusting in God's provision for rest, if you were here, you remember that? That was about three weeks ago. So that Sunday I preach and I talk about how God, I'm struggling and I repented of the fact that I don't trust God to give me rest. And I'm working out Monday morning. Now I leave on Thursday for my trip to Montana. I'm working out Monday and I'm doing squats at the gym. And my, bike, my back starts to tighten up a little bit and I didn't think much of it. And I get done and then about, oh, three, four hours later, my back started hurting a little bit more. Then by Monday night, it was really hurting. Then by Tuesday, it was spasming. And I go to the chiropractor, Nick McCauley, and he adjusts me and I go get a massage, but my back's not getting better. By Tuesday night, I can barely stand or walk. And I've got to leave Thursday. I've got to drive to Minneapolis, then take a two-hour flight and then another two-hour drive. And Wednesday comes around and literally, I all, the only thing I could do on Wednesday, this was last two Wednesdays ago, was lay on my couch on my side. That was it. I couldn't do anything else. Every time I sat up, my back would spasm. If I sat down, my back would spasm. I couldn't walk. I went to the chiropractor. So three chiropractor visits and a massage later, my back's not getting any better. And I go to Lisa and I'm like, you gotta understand, I've been looking forward to this trip for a year. And I'm like, babe, I don't, I'm like 95% sure I'm not gonna make it. It hurts too much. And so I do what I know the Bible tells me to do. I throw out to, to my friends and some people at the retreat. And I said, hey, I need prayer. My back is hurting. And, and so I threw out a prayer to some people here. And Trisha McGrath, anybody who doesn't know Trisha, she's not only a prayer warrior. One of the gifts that God has given her is words of knowledge at time where she'll speak things. Literally one time we were, in a, we were in a council meeting making a decision. And Trisha texts me, not knowing what's going on. And she says, hey, I feel like the Lord's giving me this for you. And it literally was the answer to the question that we were wrestling with at council, right? So I, I send out, hey, I really need prayer. I need God to do something to heal my back. And she, she types me and she says, hey, I want you, what I want you to do is I want you to declare any areas of sin or distrust in the Lord, repent of anything you're not believing in. And then she takes it one step further. She calls me. <laughs> so I pick up the phone and Trisha goes, hey, I just wanted to call. I want to call and pray over you. And literally my back is still spasming. And as we're praying and she's praying over me, my back goes from spasming to just being tight. If you've ever had back injury, you know the difference. Spasming really hurts. Tight is just feels uncomfortable. As we're praying, it goes from spasming to just tightness. And by the time we're done, my back isn't feeling great. But instead of feeling 5%, I feel 60%. And it continued to be tight. And I told my wife, we get off the phone. And I said, babe, my back is starting to feel better. I think I'm going to be able to go on the trip. And she's like, I don't really think you should go. Your back is really jacked up. And I'm like, well, I've been waiting all year. The only thing that's going to take me out of is if I literally cannot walk or stand. Everything, I'm going. So Thursday morning, I wake up. My back is still tight, but it's okay. So I say, babe, I'm going to go. And, and if I drive, when I get to the airport, if I can't stand, if my back is spasming again, I'll take that as an indicator that I shouldn't go. So I drive two hours to the airport. I get up. My back feels the same. It's not getting worse, not getting better. I call my wife. I said, babe, I think I'm going to go. So I hop on the plane. I fly on the plane two hours. My back is still not getting worse, not getting better. I get there and all the brothers are like, dude, you're here. And I'm like, I know I'm here, right? We're all kind of shocked. And I said, this is an act of God that I'm here. Now, here's the thing. My back was still hurting. And we prayed for God to heal. Now, here's what happened. I went fly fishing down the river the first day, but I got done and I was like, that really hurt. I don't want to do that again. I caught one little any teeny bitty trout. It's this big. They actually took a picture and they said, Jason, congratulations. You got the f smallest trout on the trip. I'm like, yay me. And, and so I'm like, okay, well, because my back was hurting, every decision I made on the trip was dependent on my back. And normally, yeah, preach it. And normally... Uh, what I would do is, uh, because here's the thing, um, the way that I'm realizing that God is working on me is my tendency is to chase other things to get to meet my need instead of chasing God. 
And because of my back, I couldn't do fishing the next day, which was, of course, when they just crushed the fish. Like, they caught like 60 fish between five boats. I mean, they were just, and if you've ever fly fished, that's a lot of fly fishing, right? And then the next day, they caught equally more. I, I went on a pontoon, and all I did was rest. And now, here's the thing. God didn't heal me 100%. And the question is, why? He healed, but he didn't heal 100%. Why? Because God knew what I needed, not what I wanted. See, what God understood was that had my back been incredibly healed, you know what I would have done? I would have chased after all the fun things instead of just resting in the Lord. And so over that next four days, while everybody else was having a great time, I was making every decision around my back, but it was forcing me to actually rest. Now, anybody who knows me knows this. Um, when I have a hard time staying still, I also have a hard time not talking. <laughs> I know you're shocked by that. And, uh, and so... They, one of the days that we were supposed to go on the, uh, out fishing, one of the options was to go on the pontoon. And we're out on the pontoon on this giant, it's a 70-mile lake in Fort Smith, Montana. And it is gorgeous. And I mean, there's cliffs, it's just beauty. And all the guys, that are, the guys that are on the boat with us, um, they're jumping into the water and they're cliff diving. All the things that I'm like, dude, I want to do that so bad. But I'm like, no. And one of my brothers is a pastor at a church in Texas. He goes, Jason, why don't you go in the water? And I said, dude, I'm not afraid of getting in the water. I'm afraid of what's going to happen when I try to come back in. Because when you have a bad back, any small movement can jack things up, right? And he goes, Jason, if you need to, tell you what, jump in the water. We'll help you back into the boat. Every part of me was like, yes, I'm going to do it. And yet there was that still small voice in me that went, that's not what you need. It's what you want. I got to sit through the entire trip and I missed out on some of the fun things. But here's the thing. God kept my, bite, my back tight so I could be tight with him. What I wanted was complete healing and Jesus knew that what I needed was to depend on him. And so he healed just enough for me to be present. Now, is that what I asked for? No. Now, this actually has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. See, here's the thing. Last week, Megan talked about God's provision. And sometimes we have to trust God, but God will not always give us what we want. He'll give us what we need so that we can lean into him and to trust him more. And this morning, I want to talk about God's promise to hear and listen to you. And we're going to talk about specifically what these two words mean and how they relate to us. And, and functionally, hear and listen in the Bible are used interchangeably. But in our culture, they're not the same word. Hearing and listening have different values and meanings, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, by show of hands, struggle with trusting God that he actually hears your prayer? And I'll put my hand first. How many of you struggle believing that God actually hears your prayer? It's okay that you struggle with that. I do. I often struggle with praying. Prayer is not my natural language. It's something I have to remind myself to do. Because sometimes I wonder, God, do you actually hear me? Now, here's the thing. I know what the Bible says. I know that the Bible tells me that God hears and listens to those who belong to him. But I struggle. My mind starts playing games on me. I'm a mind person. I get stuck in my head a lot. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I often struggle with praying because sometimes I wonder if God actually hears me. And I know some of you in this room have no idea what I'm talking about because you have what is called the spiritual gift of faith. Now, let me talk about it. There's two gifts here. There's the first gift, which is salvation, which the Bible tells us the only way you can confess the Lord is because God has given you faith. That is a gift he's given you to believe in Jesus. But the spiritual gift of faith is like faith on steroids. Literally, it's the person with the spiritual gift of faith. They have an unshakable 
belief that God will do exactly what he says he will and that they'll trust if it's a yes, no, or maybe they don't care. They trust that God is sovereign in control. That is the spiritual gift of faith. The gift of faith, the first gift that if you're a Christian, you received, Ephesians 2 says this, by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. The reason why you believe is because God first acted in you. You don't find God, God finds you. And it's not a result of your works so that you cannot boast. It is a gift of God. That's the first gift. If you're a Christian, that's the first gift. The second, uh, the spiritual gift of faith is up there with things like teaching and preaching and wisdom and prophecy and healing. There are spiritual gifts. Some people have the spiritual gift of faith that they have an unshakable confidence in God's word, his promises, and his faithfulness. The apostle Paul in Romans wrote these words. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now listen to this next part. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now some, there are two ways to interpret this and scholars aren't sure, but I believe that the the text around it kind of supports it. One will say the, the, the accordance to the gift given to you is the faith you have to believe in Jesus. But the rest of that chapter is all about spiritual gifts. And I think what it means is that for some people, God gives them the spiritual gift of faith. Now, here's the thing. Did you know you can pray and ask God for any gift? You can. You have access because he is a good father who gives every gift he gives is good. And you can pray and say, God, I want the spiritual gift of faith. I can tell you, I've prayed that. God, give me that unshakable belief that you will do exactly what you say will. And he's not given it to me to this point. I don't have the spiritual gift of faith. I still believe, but I wrestle and I I go, well, God, I've asked for it. Why aren't you giving it to me? And I wonder if it's because God knows that if he gave me that gift, I might need something else more. Like my children, my children ask for gifts all the time. Regularly, I don't give them what they want. I give them what they need, but they can still ask. And so it's okay to pray for that. How many of you believe you have the spiritual gift of faith, that unshakable, unwavering trust in God's provision? Raise your hand. There's a few of you who do right? And that's okay. That's praise God you have that. It's not a better or worse gift. It's just a gift. It's a gift that God has given. So here's what happens. When we wrestle with God, we wrestle with thinking God always hears and answers our our prayers. Notice what I said is I said thinking. I didn't say believing. I actually believe that I believe God answers and hears our prayers. I believe that God is listening. My head gets in the way. For some of you, it's your heart gets in the way, your emotions or feelings, or it's your gut. Sometimes you get in the way. Now, there's some cool things about this. See, I I believe fully, because God's word says this, that God hears and listens to my prayers and your prayers if you love Jesus. But here's the key in this. The promise to listen to hear is only for those who belong to Christ. If you are not a Christian, God does not promise to hear or listen to your prayers. It doesn't mean he won't listen. It means he doesn't promise to. Do you see the difference? For the person who is a child of the king, he will hear and listen to you. If you do not belong to Jesus, he might listen to you. He might not. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to. But if you're a Christian, you have the promise that God will hear and listen to your prayers. I want to share a story with you in Mark chapter 9. And maybe you're familiar with this story. So one day, Jesus is coming into this village with three of his best friends, Peter, James, and John. As they're walking into the village, they get closer and they see there's this large crowd gathering around some of his disciples and the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law were some of Jesus' harshest critics. And they were actually some of his enemies. And they're debating with the disciples. And and Jesus doesn't know what they're debating about. And so he comes in and he says, hey, what are you all arguing about? There's all these people listening to this debate. But before they can answer, 
this man comes to the feet of Jesus and he says, Rabbi, teacher, I have brought you my son who is demon-possessed to heal. This demon has made it so he can't speak. It throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth together. He stiffens up. Now, I want to speak to you skeptics or cynics out there. I don't believe that everybody in this room is a Christian or some of you might be wrestling, deconstructing your faith. One of the struggles is that when we read the New Testament, it's easy to go, well, there's a natural explanation. It's not a demon. And if you're a skeptic or a cynic and you're like, hey, all of the miracles that Jesus did on people can be explained through natural phenomenon, through psychology or mental illness or, or something else. Often people will say that this story, well, he's not demon possessed. He has epilepsy. He's having grand mal seizures and they just didn't understand that. Now, if that's you, if you're like, I don't know that I believe in all this Bible stuff. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. One, I totally get your doubt. I do. It's hard to believe this stuff. For some of us. For some of you, you're like, absolutely, totally believe it. But before you check out, would you consider for a moment, would you be willing to at least hear, listen to the rest of the story and maybe consider what the Bible says? So this man brings his son who is having seizures, who's foaming at the mouth, can't talk. And he says, Jesus, I brought, I brought my son to your disciples, but they couldn't cast out the demon." I did everything possible, which makes perfect sense. Again, for those, if you're a naturalist or someone who doesn't believe in miracles, last time I checked, it's like bringing someone with a broken arm and the doctor saying, not broken anymore, right? If you're a naturalist, that's what you believe is happening. Of course, they didn't cast out a demon because you might think it's not a demon to begin with. It's a grand mal seizure. It's, a, it's epilepsy. But let's continue on with the story. Jesus then turns to the man and says something really, really harsh. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long should I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring me the boy. Now again, let's listen to the rest of the story. So they bring the boy to Jesus. The father brings his demon-possessed son to the feet of Jesus. And when the demon sees Jesus, the, de the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. The demon begins to freak out and it throws the boy to the ground in this horrible convulsion. He begins rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asks the father, how long has your son been like this? And the father says, since he was a child, the demon has thrown him into fire or water to try and kill him. If there's anything you can do, Take pity on us and help us. I don't know about you. If you're a parent, there's nothing I wouldn't do to help my children. When my daughter was very little, um, whenever she got sick, she'd break out into a rash. And it was the weirdest thing. Like we always knew she was getting sick because she'd get these scaly bumps all over her body. And one time she had a rash that literally cut halfway down her body. So one half was totally fine. The other half from head to toe was covered in rash. And we take her to the doctor and I'm holding her and the doctor literally looks at me and goes, I'm not touching her. And I'm like, what? You got gloves. You're the doctor. What's going on? And if you want to, something that'll freak you out is when a doctor says they won't touch your kid. And then they begin to poke her and try and get blood from her. And the entire time I'm holding Indy and she's maybe, I think maybe a year, nine months, something like this. And she's crying and they can't draw blood. And every pin, every poke they make, she's crying more and more. And I'm holding my daughter as they're doing this. And I wanted to rage punch every single one of them in the throat. Like the entire time I'm like, you're hurting my daughter. I, my mind, like my physical body was like, danger, danger, Will Robinson. My mind's like, they're trying to help her. And I had to hold back. Why? Because if you have a child, you will do anything to help your child, right? This dad is willing to do anything to help his child. He's tried everything. And he now says, listen, will you take pity on me? If there's anything you can do, take pity on me and my son. Help us. 
Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, this next part is really important. Immediately, the boy's father cries out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Let me say it again. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Now, you may not catch this, but did you know that doubt and faith can coexist? He believes, and yet he's struggling with doubt. Faith and doubt are not opposite sides of the, uh, of the sea or on different lakes. No, they, they go together. Faith and doubt can coexist because your doubts are not more powerful than God's promises. Did you catch that? Your doubts are not more powerful than God's promises. It's not about how big your faith is. It's about how big God is. That's why Jesus says if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to move over to there. Now, there's more to this going on. Man, I wish that I had heard this when I was younger. Jesus then rebukes the demon. Deaf and mute spirit come out of him and never enter him again. The boy, the demon inside of the boy starts to shriek. Now, I've encountered demon possession one time in my ministry, in my life, that I can honestly say I believe it was a demonic spirit. The demon begins to cry out as Jesus rebukes him. And as it shrieks, the boy falls on the ground and violently convulses again. And as the demon is coming out of the boy, and the boy is laying there and he looks like he's dead. And now all the people are like, oh my gosh, Jesus just killed this little kid. And Jesus grabs the young man by his hand and lifts him up. This man's been healed. Now check this out. For those of you who might wrestle with believing that this story is true, you might be saying, well, how can I trust this? How do I know it's not just a myth or a fable, something that happened over time? It didn't really happen. Well, there's a couple things why we can trust this story. First, did you know Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel that was recorded? It's closest to Jesus's ministry, which meant that when people read it, there were still eyewitnesses who could have said that didn't happen. All it took was for one person to say, hey, I was there. And that boy didn't get healed. I still know that kid. He's still, he's still got demons in him or he's still convulsing. So first off, the earliest accounts we have are from the book of Mark. No one contradicted this statement. Secondly, obviously something happened. Something clearly happened. Well, now you might say, Jason, I don't know if that's a demon. I think it still might be epilepsy because after all, in the ancient world, they didn't understand science. They didn't understand viruses and sicknesses and mental illness. They didn't understand that. So everything was either a demon or a god. Well, this is how we know that this is not the case. Did you know that in Matthew chapter 4, in the ancient world, it says that Jesus came and he healed demon-possessed and epileptics. Which means that in the world of Jesus, they knew the difference between someone who had epilepsy and someone who was possessed by a demon. So this isn't that they were mistaking one thing for the other. No, they understood that this was demon possession. There was no doubt about it. Now, here's the thing. You have to put faith in the book. Now, our faith is not blind faith. It's reasonable faith, but it's still faith. And so you can trust that something happened. I would say that the Bible, Mark or Matthew or Luke, are accurate when they say it's demon possession. Now, to end the story, later that night, Jesus is hanging out with all of his disciples who were there. And they say, why couldn't we drive the demon out? What's different about you than us. How come you tell the demon to come out and he does and how come when we do nothing happens? And Jesus responds, these kinds of demons only come out by prayer and some say fasting and prayer. Now let's be honest, the reason why we struggle with praying to God for things like healing is often he doesn't answer the way we want to, so we struggle with believing he actually hears. How many of you ever prayed for something that didn't happen the way you wanted it to? 
You pray for healing and they don't get healed. And when that happens, it, it creates something inside of you where you're like, maybe God isn't real. Maybe he doesn't heal. Here the disciples were asking the same question. We prayed, what did we do wrong? Now, I think it's important that we go back to the earlier conversation between Jesus and the Father. I want to bring us back there very quickly. Remember, the Father brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, take pity. And Jesus responds, if you can, everything is possible. Everybody say possible. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, I think our misunderstanding is, and this is what I wish I had been taught, we often think that what the Bible, what this verse actually says is, everything you ask for is going to happen for the one who believes. It's possible, not guaranteeable. Those are two different things. Faith opens the possibility. But for something to be possible, it means it may not happen. Otherwise, Jesus would have said, anything you ask for is going to happen exactly the way you ask. No, for the one who has faith, everything is possible. Jesus never claimed that he would heal every sickness here on earth at this time. Did you know there were people who encountered Jesus who weren't healed? There was an entire village who wasn't healed because of their unbelief. Miracles are possible, but they are not guaranteeable. And the reason why this matters is that often we pray because what I was taught, whether or not they meant to, I don't think they meant to, but what I caught. You ever realize sometimes it's not about what you're taught, but what you catch, right? What I caught was is that if I had enough faith, then God would do X, Y, Z. And so I'd pray, and then if the prayer didn't happen, it was either because I didn't have enough faith or they didn't have enough faith. But here's the thing, it's not about the size of your faith, it's about the size of your God. And so God can do what he wants to do. Now you've probably heard this, that God does answer every prayer. He either answers it with a yes, no, or a maybe later. And I don't want to get into that one because I don't think that really matters at this point. What we want to talk about is what does this have to do with God promising to hear and listen to us? Well, I think part of the problem comes down to two big questions. If you're ready for these questions, say, I'm ready. Okay, so here's the first question. What do you believe about God? And second, what's the difference between hearing and listening? Let's talk about what we believe about God. I'm making an assumption that almost everybody in this room is a believer in God, trusts in God. You may not be following Jesus perfectly. Welcome to the fan club. Um, but everybody here, I believe most of you believe that Jesus is God. But maybe you don't. Maybe you're here because you're checking things out. Maybe you're an atheist who's like, I don't know if this God thing is real. Maybe you're an agnostic who's like, I'll believe if you can show me. But there are four misconceptions, common misconceptions about who God is. Here's misconception number one. God is a divine clockmaker. What this means is some people believe that God created the world and the universe and all of humanity and then stood back and let the clock unwind. He let nature take its course. This is often called deism. Everybody say deism. Deism is a hands-off God. He got it going. He's a watchmaker and he goes, look at my watch, go. Okay. Second is the absent or distant God. They've done research that shows that among Christians... Depending on what your relationship with your physical earthly father was like is often how you will view your heavenly father. And these next ones are kind of connect to that. Some of you believe that God is an absent or a distant God, that God created the world and humanity but simply doesn't care about the world and has distanced himself from it. He's like the proverbial father who went out to get a gallon of milk or a pack of cigarettes and never came home. That's how some of you might view God. He's absent or distant. Some of you think he's an angry and spiteful God that he's sitting up there and he's looking at the world and humanity is angry and he's looking for opportunities to punish or to bring wrath on you. He's a vengeful, angry father. Some of you think he's the genie god like Robin Williams and Aladdin. 
where he simply exists, he created you, but now he exists to make your wish, wishes come true. He's like some sort of divine vending machine that if you put in the right change, exact amount, then he'll give you what you want. There's these four views. Again, you have the, the divine clockmaker, the absent or distant God, the angry and spiteful God, or God, the genie. But this is not how the Bible, which is God's word written to us. The Bible is not a book about you. It's a book about God. And the authors of the Bible reveal who God is. And one of the things we talk about is that God is the Father. Now, you may not know this, and it's hard to comprehend, but God is three distinct persons in one substance called God. There's God the Father, God the... And God the... They are not the same person shown in different ways. They are three distinct persons in one being called God that is a mystery. We cannot fathom it. If you could, he wouldn't be God anymore. Some of you want to get rid of the mystery of God, and if God is no longer mysterious, then he's like us. God is mysterious. We can't fathom it. But the first person of the Godhead is God the Father. And now here's the thing. Right now in our culture, there is a war against the fatherhood of God. This doesn't mean it's not the gender of God in the sense of that he's male or female. It's talking about who he is, what he does, and it, it matters. Did you know the only people in Scripture, when it re refers to supernatural, who use the word they or we are demons? He is God the Father. He is not a God, him, her, she, they, them. He's not that. He is God the Father. Jesus said, pray to God the Father, not God the they. And I'm not meaning this to get on a kick, but it matters. Because the fatherhood of God is under attack. And the reason why it's under attack is because men, myself included, we are not divine fathers. We make God the Father look bad. And so there's, as a reaction, you have people who don't know Jesus, don't love Jesus, or don't really care about what the Bible says, where they want to take back or take from something that God has defined about himself. To say that he is Father has more to do with what he does, his role, his action, activity, and creation, and in the Godhead. He is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Remember, Jesus goes into the water and the Father says, this is my Son. He doesn't say, this is another side of me. He said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit comes down. Three persons, one substance, God. So God the Father is not described the way that we often think He is. See, what we find from God the Father is that He is not distant or angry. He's not a clockmaker. He's certainly not a genie, but He is a loving and good father. And as a God, the father, Jesus teaches us this prayer that is meant to draw us into the nature to understand who the father is. The Lord's prayer is not just, a, 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 here's what you should pray, but rather how you should pray. It reveals, it unlocks, it unpacks the beauty of who God is. Listen to this, and it's going to be on the Zion app. If you don't have the Zion app, check it out. But check. Here's what the Lord's Prayer does. It reveals the character and nature of God. First, our Father, you are adopted into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. You are made sons and daughters of the King. Amen? Who is in heaven. He is not a human father. He is perfect in every way. He is not sinful or capricious. He is a good, good father. Hallowed be your name. His name is holy and worthy of praise. Your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is a king and he has a kingdom and he wants to bring that kingdom to earth. Give us this day our daily bread. He is a provider. Our father provides and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass us. He provides forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross and through the spirit we too are able to forgive. Lead us not into temptation. He is your leader. And if you follow him, he will never lead you to sin. He will not. But deliver us from evil or the evil one. And if you follow him and if you trust him, he will deliver you and protect you from Satan. 
That doesn't mean protect you from life. Christians die. Bad things happen. God the Father is a loving, generous protector and king who provides and leads. He is not hands-off. He is not distant or absent. He is not bitter and angry. He is not a genie. He is God the Father. Amen? And the Lord's Prayer teaches us the heart of the Father. This is why it's a prayer and not just a teaching. It is a way to help us communicate with God the Father. But now here's the other part. Remember I said the first one is your view of God. The second is your view of hearing versus listening. There is a difference. Here's what we've learned. Hearing is the ability to perceive sound because you have ears. That's what hearing is. Listening is the skill of receiving and responding to that information because you have a mind. This is why deaf people may not be able to hear, but they can listen. They may not be able to hear, but they can listen. God hears you and he listens to you. He hears audibly, but he listens to you. When I tell my children, if you have children, maybe you'll understand this. I tell my children, hey, go clean your room. They heard me. My son will usually respond with it. Eh, right? I don't, it's like from the Goonies or something. Hey, you got it. Right? You know, it's the whole thing. If he's listening to me, it means what? He's going to go and clean his room. He may have heard me, but was he listening? Now, here's the second part of hearing versus listening. Hearing is passive. You have limited ability to control what you hear. There's noise going all around. In fact, our brains are designed in such a way that we drown out background noise. If you've ever sat in an absolute silent room, it'll drive you crazy because your brain actually needs all the other stuff. Listening is active. Hearing is passive. Listening is active. You have to choose to discern and understand what you're listening to, which is why when I do premarital coaching, I teach active listening because most of us aren't good at listening. It's exhausting to listen. It means being fully present. All right. We're coming to the end. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. We often confuse listening to somebody as them agreeing with us or doing what we ask for. See, part of most of our conflict in culture is when somebody doesn't agree with us, we'll say, you're not listening to me. No, I don't agree with you. We often assume that listening means agreement. And this is why I think maybe the problem is this. What if instead of saying God listens to us, he listens for us? Meaning he listens for what's best for us. He's not just listening to you as if, he's your par- as if you're his parent and he's your son. No, he is listening for you. So when he prays, he makes the best decision possible for you, for himself, and for the world. You have a God who's listening for you. This is why Jesus in the garden, when he said, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. That's why King David cried out and said, God, where are you? Why are you leaving me alone? Why are you not coming and rescuing me? But if you read the rest of Psalm 13, he then goes on to praise God in his goodness. I want to share one final story with you. And it's a hard one. My, I'd moved to Phoenix when I was 25 and there was a woman that when I was in high school who was kind of like Lisa and I's spiritual mom. She lived in another part of California and we would often go visit her and over time, I lost contact with her and her family. This woman loved Jesus, loved me exceptionally well. And, and about five, six years had passed. And we had moved from Phoenix up to Minnesota. This is 2002. And I got a call from a mutual friend of ours. And they said, hey, um, this woman, she's been diagnosed with cancer and she's on her deathbed. And so I remember we, me and Lisa had just moved to Minnesota. We'd been there for maybe a couple weeks. And I was making plans to try and fly back to say goodbye to her because this woman was, meant that much to me. And before I could even book the tickets, I got a call that very same night and she had died. She lost the battle to cancer, but she won the war with Jesus. About a year or so later, 
uh, I was in San Diego visiting and I, I got to do lunch with her daughter. They now lived in San Diego and her daughter shared the story with me and I didn't know this and she goes, Jason, it was so hard because my mom was in the oncology wing and, and all these pastors and people that she had impacted over the years came to pray with her and pray over her and we were praying for God to heal and she goes, Jason, uh, it was like round the clock people were coming in and praying cancer, binding the spirit of cancer, casting cancer out, healing cancer, praying, all these things. And my mom still died. But here was the remarkable thing. And she goes, Jason, I'm not going to lie. I'm still wrestling with this. While they were praying for my mom, they were he- God was healing all these people around her in the hospital ward, in the cancer ward. There was not a single bed in the ward that had a patient except for her. And my friends weren't going to pray with all these other people. They were praying for my mom. And one by one, beds were being cleared out for people who were healed from cancer. But my mom wasn't healed for cancer. And I don't understand why. How many of you have been in that place where you don't understand why? I don't understand why. Why did he heal them and not her? Now, here's the crazy part. Her mom probably loved every second of it. Her mom praised Jesus and understood because I knew this woman. She celebrated every person who was healed because she received ultimate healing, but it's not what we wanted. Now, little did I know that just a dozen or so years later, that would be the prayer for Lisa and I as we watched her mom die from cancer. It'll be eight years ago this October. See, I've prayed for people who have been healed of cancer. I know individuals who God, literally one of my friends, his dad had a brain tumor tumor going to die. They went back in, they prayed for him and the tumor was gone. There was now a blank spot in the MRI or whatever it is they use. Completely gone. I've known people who are healed from cancer. I know people that they were told they had cancer. They go to the doctor and the doctor says, it's not cancer. We must have had a wrong diagnosis. It's, you know, there's nothing there or it's, it's fatigue. I've had other people it was a combination of medical and Holy Spirit, but most people that I've prayed for were not healed the way I wanted them to be. And as Lisa's mom in a span of about eight months, went from being this vibrant woman to dying on Halloween night. I was confronted with this fact. The reason why God is good is not because he does what we want. It's because he is good in spite of what we ask. He never promises to listen to you. He promises to listen for you. And I'm not going to say I have answers. I don't understand, but I don't need to. This is an invitation to trust, to trust that God is doing good things. I guarantee you, my friend's mother, in her mind, cancer was worth it if it meant all those other people got healed and they got to know Jesus. Right now, and I'll just say this, I know in our community, we're reeling from the loss of a young man too in the span of a few months. And there's a lot of heartache and a lot of hurt. And our most important thing we can say is not to try and give answers. It's to point people back to a loving father who wants to engage and love and hold and comfort and bring peace. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe your marriage is struggling and you've been asking for healing. Maybe you've got physical illness, whatever it is, if you need it, God invites us to come and pray. In fact, I'm going to encourage you, if you need physical healing, pray. What I didn't share with you is uh, Saturday... <laughs> So I just told how God brought partial healing to my back, right? And I was feeling really good. Saturday at 1.30 in the morning, I woke up in excruciating pain and apparently I dislocated my hip in the middle of the night. And, uh, and I've, all day Saturday, my pain level was like at an eight. And I went to uh, the doctor and he tractioned my leg and popped it back in. And I mean, it was a big, long thing, right? 
and I came in going, God, it's so funny. I just talked about how you healed 95% and I'm in more pain now than I was during that entire thing. But here's the thing. I don't worship God because he takes away my pain. I worship God because he took my pain of sin and death. I worship God because he's good and worthy of it. I still bring it. I want to encourage you to. We're going to come and close with this last bit of a song. And I apologize. I went a couple minutes over, but I think God's worth it. Amen. We're going to close with this worship song. Would you join us? And if you need prayer, if you need healing, we still go to God and heal. He still heals. But we trust. We trust and obey. And if you need healing, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, if you need healing, I want to invite you to the corner. Let's come and worship. And let's just close in this last song.